So let's pray as we begin, as I begin. Our God and Father, we thank you again for this chance to hear from your word uh, and we ask that you would open our ears and calm our hearts to hear you speak to us today for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we are growing people uh, by growing churches or growing churches by growing people. (coughs) Uh, From earlier this morning, we saw that uh, two of the first main features... (coughs) for maturing people in Christ was a definite statement of the gospel and some application of that statement to the life of a particular community in this time in Colossae. Now we've looked this morning at Paul's desire for the Colossians to mature in their relationship with God through Jesus. Now any personal relationship In any personal relationship, the strength of the relationship is proportional to the depth of relationship. The more you know about someone, the stronger relationship you have with them. If for no other reason than if they're having a bad day or they're a bit off colour, you can say, oh, they're not usually like that. You can be understanding. You can cut them some slack if you like. But the, the basic idea is that the deeper you know someone, the more you know about them, the more you've seen them in action, the more interaction you've had with them, the stronger your relationship with them will be. If you don't know very much about people, they're just sort of passing acquaintances. Now all of that is important because in order to mature in a relationship with God through Jesus, we must have a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and what those actions mean for us. So there's two things, three things we might uh, write up on the board. Who is Jesus? What has he done? <coughs> And what does that mean? Alright, there's three questions that we want to uh, answer as we go through this uh, particular talk. Uh, Now, who is Jesus? What has he done? What does that mean for us? That's what Paul's going to uh, address next as we look at these next few chunks. Now, again, we, in order to give us uh, some uh, perspective on what Paul is talking about here, it is, uh, it's handy to reflect on the kind of religious environment in which the Colossians are in. Uh, as I said, they, they have something of a salad bar approach to religion. Uh, there's a whole different range of practices have all been uh, brought into play so that as they try and make their peace with this great distant God, they enact or they enlist the support of various spiritual powers by performing magic or uh, undergoing aesthetic practices or gaining secret knowledge. This whole menagerie of things uh, is necessary in order to help them get by. 
as I said, it, it's only, it may well only be for ordinary things. How can I get on with my neighbour? How can my business proceed? Uh, that sort of thing. But all of this uh, is necessary in order to give them some sense of control in their lives. That's basically what religions do for people. They enable them to gain some sense of control over how they're living, especially if they think they're dealing with forces that are out of their control. So they make their sacrifices, they do their business, really just to have some semblance of control in their lives. That's the kind of thing that the, uh, that's the kind of religious culture in which the Church of Colossae finds itself. And therefore that's the kind of fear, if you like, that they're living in and the fear that Paul wants to address as a result of knowing the Gospel. And one of the first things that Paul wants them to understand, uh, and uh, I've, I've printed it there on your outline, is that the fullness of God is for you. The fullness of God, all the fullness of God, is for you. They don't have to live in fear of cosmic forces, uh, of not knowing how to relate to a distant God. They don't have to live with that kind of fear because all the fullness of God is for them in Jesus. In Jesus, the <coughs> God's chosen ruler over all things in heaven and on earth is for them. Now, we look, look there at uh, chapter 1, verse 13. We'll start to get into how this works. Who is Jesus? He's God's king and ruler over all. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, that is Jesus. The Son, verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Lord Jesus rules over everything because he is the one through whom God made everything. That is, when we know Jesus, when we know the Lord Jesus, we know the one through whom God made the whole universe. When we look back in the uh, uh, beginning of Genesis and it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that God who spoke and made the creation, we know him as the risen Lord Jesus. Now you and I can make things uh, and when we do we gain some kind of control over them but it doesn't take very long before the things we try and control get out of hand. Uh, principally, you know, when uh, regardless of how much a climate sceptic you may be, the human being's ability to pollute the creation uh, in, the, in an attempt to try and control it somehow is really quite infamous. But Jesus controls the creation for God. He's so, so close and so imminent is God in Jesus acting through him that Jesus can control storms. Let me read to you an incident, famous incident, from Luke chapter 8. 
One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out, and as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. A squall came up down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and there was a great danger. The disciples woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters, the storm subsided and all was calm. Now, we can't even predict the weather, let alone control it like that. That is God's fullness working in the world. The God who created all things is working in all his fullness in the Lord Jesus. I can't even get my children to remain calm. And Jesus stands up in a boat and tells the storm, no, that's enough, thank you. That'll do. Settle down. And it was calm. Jesus rules over everything because he's the one through whom it has been made. And Jesus rules over everything because it is God's plan for him to be the ruler of the universe. Look at uh, chapter 1 verse 16 again. All things have been created through him and for him. Now the world does revolve around one person, but it's not you or me. That may be, um, may be bad news. I'm sorry to break that to you late on a Saturday afternoon like this. The world doesn't revolve around you or me, but it does revolve around Jesus. He is the one who is at the centre of God's plans for the universe. He, God's royal and eternal Son, is the one for whom all things are made. He's the star of the show, the lead role. He is the hero. He's the perfect good guy who gets the girl in the end. All of creation is moving forward. It's progressing. But it's not progressing in some kind of a crass evolutionary survival of the fittest type style. It's not progressing in some kind of uh, outbreaking of Western technology with plasma screens and easy living and that sort of thing. All the world is progressing to a point where God will reveal that the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, is the ruler over all of it. Because it's all for him. It's his world. And Jesus rules over everything because it's for him. And Jesus rules over everything because in him we see the way that everything and everyone is supposed to relate to God the Father by beginning and firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. See, in one way the church begins with Jesus himself. He is the firstborn from among the dead, the first one to enter uh, into God's new creation and everyone else is brought into that through him with the intimacy that a head has with its body. It's unusual to see a body to get about without a head. Some people you may think they're fairly headless the way they carry their bodies around. But by and large, as a general rule, you don't see many bodies getting around without their head or heads getting around without a body. They have a life link, don't they? Once you separate one from the other, they both die. Jesus is the head of the church and so intimately connects the church in Colossae with the life of God himself. For if all the fullness of God is in Jesus, then all the fullness of God is available for the church. 
who are the body of Christ. So not only is Jesus the ultimate power in the universe, Paul is saying he's on your side. He's like the ultimate big brother, as it were. Now, I'm the oldest child in my family, so I, I, never, I had to be the big brother uh, for everybody else. I, I didn't have the uh, opportunity to hide behind a sibling's uh, coat. But I did have a friend. His name was Matthew Farah. And when we were at high school, you know, 15, 16, even at that age, Matthew was six foot eight. Now, that's about this much taller than me now. So here we were, a bunch of me, you know, I, I was a tall teenager, but not six foot eight. And, you know, we'd go places with Matthew and you were invincible. Because <laughs> nobody's going to touch a kid who's that big. Uh, and we had to travel around Sydney uh, for various sporting events. Uh, and as you can imagine, going to various boys' schools, you know, there's want to be a bit of argy-bargy uh, on the way home, especially if you beat the home team. They want to remind you about that all the way to the train station. If you're with Matthew Farr, absolutely untouchable. Because none of these guys, no, no one is as big as him. And so Matthew's friends, like me, skinny me, I too become invincible because of my big friend. What Paul is telling the Colossians here is that because of who Jesus is, you don't need to fear any other powers because all the fullness of God is for you and Jesus is the head of the body that you are as the church. You're on God's side and he is on your side. In an incredible distinction, if you like, between these pagan religions where you're always trying to win over God's favour, where you're always living under the threat that you might somehow muck things up uh, and be destined to some kind of horrible fate. In stark contrast to that, Paul says, no, in Jesus, God is for you. For you. You little guys there in Colossae, surrounded by this uh, Roman Empire, surrounded by this pagan culture. God is for you in Jesus. The church belongs to the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus belongs to the church. As God's triumphant king who rules over from the right hand of heaven, Jesus is the champion of the church. He's overcome sin, death and evil for them. See, we mature in our relation to God when we come to grasp the significance of the fact that God is for us in the Lord Jesus. Uh, when we usually think of application, we think about, you know, this is the thing I now need to do. But again, Paul is, Paul's focus is on what God has done. The Christian gospel is all about grace. And so his focus is all upon God's gracious actions for his people. And so as he comes to apply the gospel to their lives, his focus will be on what God has done for them. Now there are many implications for the way we live uh, and it's absolutely essential to remember that the Christian gospel that grows people and churches is first and foremost about God's gracious actions for us. 
So when Paul turns his attention to applying the gospel to the Colossians, he's going to describe God's favour towards them, what God has done for them. The application of the gospel teaching is a matter of relating God's actions in Jesus to the lives of ordinary Christians. Now we've considered a little of how Jesus mediates God towards the world by exercising God's power in the world. And I also hinted that the great mystery of salvation or the great mystery of God's plans for the world uh, rely on the person of Jesus. But here then is one of the greatest mysteries of the ages that the Lord Jesus used his power to reconcile us to God. All that cosmic power uh, that Paul was just describing how all the heavens and the earth are made through Jesus Paul's saying to them Jesus used that power to reconcile you to God. Look at chapter 1 verse 21. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 You were once alienated and hostile in mind because of your evil actions but now he's reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. See, human beings have a problem. Out of envy of God's control over the world and due to the distorted pride that we have about our place in the world, we've made ourselves God's enemies. We've become alienated from God, strangers to his grace towards us in creation. We can't tell anymore that God is for us in the world. We just assume that the world is for us, principally for me. And your job is to do what I want you to do in the world. That is our default way of living. But it means we've become strangers in the world, strangers to God's grace, strangers to the God who made it. Now I don't know if you've ever had an experience of being uh, an alien or a foreigner somewhere. Uh, Maybe you've been down to Hobart uh, or something like that. When I was a teenager my family went on a trip around the world uh, and the first place we went to was Tokyo. Now I'd never been to uh, Asia before but we uh, flew overnight from Sydney and arrived in Tokyo at 6.30 in the morning having been on the aeroplane for 10 hours. So all of a sudden I was feeling feeling pretty out of it anyway. We also went from Australian winter to the northern summer so the temperature rose 20 degrees uh, from Sydney to Tokyo And then I get off the plane and all I can see are little people with black hair and brown skin. Now, that's because they're Japanese. All Japanese are like that. But it was completely foreign to me. I was a complete stranger, an alien. None of the signs are in English, but everybody knows what to do. None of the announcements sound like a language that I could possibly understand, but everybody else seems to know what to do. Everybody's walking around, they're all fitting in. Everything seems to be working, but I was an alien, a stranger to the way that that world was working. And Paul tells us that our refusal to relate rightly to God makes us a stranger in the world like that. We actually don't know how to live, how to get about, how to make our way, how to interact with others. Because we've been alienated from God, 
we've become strangers in God's creation. It never stopped being God's world. It never stopped being the kind of world that God wants. But we, individual sinners, by cutting ourselves off from God, by refusing to honour him as we should, we've actually become strangers in the world. We no longer know how to relate properly. We have to look out for ourselves before anybody else. We have to see things our own way and keep everybody else at a distance. And that has made us enemies of God. So even when we think we need some help to get on in life, we still want to do it on our own terms. And that's where idolatry and religion comes from. It's when people try and make up their own way of living in the world to get what they want. If you get a group, a big enough group of them together, you call it a religion. But if it's just an individual one at a time, it's just individual willfulness. That makes us God's enemies. God is not just indifferent to our ignorance. He's not just uh, He's not laid back about our refusal to acknowledge Him. We have become God's enemies. Now in the case of the Colossians, they lived in a culture which had this massive system of trying to live uh, a a decent life nonetheless and hopefully we might win favour with God again somehow. For us, I think though, the powers that we recognise or at least the powers that we perceive to have some control over us are a different kind of thing. See, it's not common for, I don't know if there's a local market in La Trobe here where you have to go and buy uh, medallions with angels' names on them in order to uh, get the girl next door to fall in love with you. It does happen there. Alright, well there you are. But more widely spread than that, there are forces that we understand to control our world, our lives, but we call them market forces. Now considering that the Lord Jesus is the one through whom and for whom all things were made, when human beings ignore his claim over the world, or worse, actively oppose him, God will not be indifferent to that. Uh, And naturally we become God's enemies. We've invented our own systems of how the world should be controlled and I'll talk a bit more about these later. But the main thing to acknowledge at this point is God already has a way of living in the world. We see it in Jesus. And when we choose to live some other way, we become God's enemies. Jesus told a parable about this uh, just before, uh, in that sort of, what do they call it, uh, Holy Week, you know, after Palm Sunday. Jesus is in the temples and he tells a parable of the wicked tenants. Do you remember that one? Remember the parable of the wicked tenants? A man plants a vineyard, then goes away and he lets the vineyard out to tenants. The tenants come in, they take over the place, but when the time comes to collect the rent, the man sends a messenger or a servant to collect the rent and the tenants don't want to pay up. And so they, you know, they beat up the servant and throw him away. And the man sends another servant and they kill him. Well, finally the man sends his son. And what do the tenants do? They say, oh, here comes the son. I guess we'd better pay up. No, they don't. They kill him because they want to gain control of things for themselves. And Jesus told that parable as a way of understanding people's response to him. Because that's exactly what people did. When God came into the world, people didn't welcome him with open arms. They rose up against him. 
And here is the great mystery of God's love towards us. That despite the way that human beings treat God, despite the way that we've treated his son, the Lord Jesus came into the world to reconcile us to God. As John says in uh, chapter 3 verse 17 of his gospel, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Instead, as Paul wrote to the Colossians, we see in chapter 1 verse 22 of Colossians, Now he, Jesus, has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. See, the Lord Jesus could have come into the world simply to clean up the mess and to get rid of all these sinners. He could have just come in and said, all right, everybody out. It's my world after all. It's actually been made for me and you guys are mucking up. Everybody out of the pool. You know, you're out. He could have done that. He could have just cleaned up. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, I quite like those Godfather movies. And in mob movies or, you know, organised crime movies, they always reach a point where the uh, Godfather will send in a cleaner. Do you know what that means? When you send in a cleaner, he kills everybody and cleans up the mess and just gets rid of all the evidence and all the trouble. God's son could have come into the world and cleaned up all the mess and gotten rid of all the troublemakers. But he came to cleanse us. Not just to clean up, but to cleanse us. Through his death on the cross... And he did that to present us holy, faultless and blameless before him. All the fullness of God came into the world to work for us, to reconcile us to God, to cleanse us. Now imagine how that must have felt to the Colossians. Here they are breaking their backs to get amongst this pagan religion and work out their rituals and gain secret knowledge and be able to get around in life by performing all these things and battering their bodies and all this sort of stuff that they had to do to just try and win God's favour to try and gain some measure of control and Paul says God came in Jesus for you to cleanse you once and for all. He died the death that you deserve. In his body the sacrifice was made for all your sins. All of them, at any time, anywhere. You don't have to live in fear because God is for you. I want to pause there for a minute. Give you the chance to just reflect uh, on what, we, what I've been saying and particularly the way I've spoken about who Jesus is and as you do I want you to make a list just on your outline there or on a piece of paper like that make a list of the kind of things that might lead you to be condemned in this world the kind of things that people look down on each other for or judge each other for the things that might make you might, might make us condemn one another they haven't done this. They haven't achieved that. 
They don't have this or that. They're not this kind of person or not that kind of person. See if you can just make up a bit of a list uh, of the sorts of things that lead people to condemn one another as you're thinking about what Jesus did. Just you know, quietly to yourself or possibly if you like, you can chat to your neighbour. I'll just give you a couple of minutes to do that before we go on. I think we have to finish at 2.30, don't we? Okay. Alright, well we've learned a lot from Paul uh, about who Jesus is, God's King who rules over all things because it was made through him and for him. And this is one of the basic foundations for growing as a Christian, that is maturing in your relationship with God. Yet maturity in a relationship with God is a lot more than just knowing things about God. It's having some personal connection with God, some kind of personal experience, some sense in which God has touched your life. And that's what Paul prays for the Colossians and we see it in chapter 1 verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So what does it mean for Jesus to be God's ruler over all? Jesus has cancelled any claim against you, uh, Paul says. The powers and authorities in the heavenlies have been defeated by Jesus and can no longer harm you. Look at uh, verse 13 of chapter 2 there. Chapter 2 verse 13 of Colossians. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge against uh, sorry the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul tells the Colossians, because Jesus has reconciled them to God, any and every sin that they may have committed against anyone has been forgiven. It's all forgiven. If there is any law or statute that stands out against them, any convention, any custom or canon, in God's eyes, it has been caught up in the Lord Jesus himself and nailed to the cross along with him. He cancelled the debt that we owe God so that no one can condemn us. Thus Jesus defeated the powers or cosmic forces and not only that, he's made a public spectacle of them. See there, uh, Paul mentions it in verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Now it may be that Paul is alluding to the practice that Roman generals had uh, once they defeated the armies in the outlying provinces. They might go up north and fight the Visigoths or something like that. And when they defeated that army, instead of killing everybody, they'd capture the general and his uh, staff, if you like, all the commanding officers and drag them back to Rome and then make them walk in chains through the streets of Rome all the way to the forum or you know, the middle of uh, Rome there, whatever the place was. And all the while everybody in Rome can see that these guys are the losers. And they bring them into the uh, forum there and lop off their heads as the final, if you like, uh, indignity for these vanquished troops. And Paul is saying, so great 
is Jesus' power and his success in forgiving our sins and cancelling the debts that anyone might have against us. He's saying to the Colossians, look, these principalities and powers, whatever they are, Jesus has conquered them in the same way that a Roman general conquers his uh, enemies. Their power to affect, their power to interact with you or control you in any way has not only been defeated, it's been publicly disgraced. So great is Jesus' victory for you. Jesus doesn't compete with these forces, he's conquered them completely. And so therefore, Paul has to say to them, therefore do not be deceived. The Colossians have been freed now from any condemnation that might hang over their daily lives because in Jesus, God counts them holy, blameless before him. They're freed from the control of external forces because they are friends, in fact, children of God now. They have been drawn up into God's family now the challenge that lay before them is to refuse these uh, powers of pagan lifestyle that might once again try and snare them in their daily life. You know, when, you're, when you go from a life that's dominated by religious practices to a life that's grounded in simple trust, it feels a bit bare, doesn't it? If all you have to do is trust in a promise, as opposed to having a whole lifestyle full of rituals and uh, things to live by, well, you know, living by a promise just seems a bit bare. Paul's saying to them, no, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Don't give in again. The only standard which anyone can judge our life is the Lord Jesus himself. And he has given that to us as a gift. Paul says to the Colossians that any any other explanation about the meaning of life is false and empty and based on the deceit of human tradition. We gain this sense of these human traditions in what Paul says in chapter 2 verse 20. Look down there. Paul says, look, if you died with Christ to the elemental forces of the world, why do you live as though you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to these regulations? Don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. All these regulations refer to what is destroyed when we were raised up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting ascetic practices and humility and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value against fleshly indulgence. Because of the way you've been cleansed and made holy by the blood of the Lord Jesus covering your sins, you don't need to observe all these other things as well. They're a waste of time. Not only will they not make you right with God, they don't actually change the way we relate. They don't change our hearts. So Paul says, do not submit to them any longer. They're useless. They don't make you a better person. They they make no lasting change to our personality. They're merely human attempts to appease spiritual powers who've been defeated. These petty rituals cannot hope to express the value in which God holds you. On the one hand, you have the crucified Son of God to testify how much God loves us. On the other hand, you have a silly list of daily routines which may somehow talk about your value. Which one would you choose? Paul says, 
Choose Jesus at the cross who died for you. That's how important you are in God's eyes. Now it would be fair to ask at this point, what can all this possibly have to do with us? Now I put some emphasis on the fact that Paul is tailoring his message to a particular audience, the church in Colossae. But what if you're not a member of that household? What if you don't belong to Philemon's household in first century Colossae? (coughs) In general, our culture doesn't tend to recognise spiritual powers as having any great sway over our daily lives. Now we don't mind television shows about vampires or angels, uh, but on the whole that seems to appeal more to the uh, teen girl market. It's fairly uncommon in most places to go to the nearest shopping mall uh, and to buy magic talismans, although not always because our culture is, on the whole, outwardly profoundly secular from its point of view. But as I mentioned earlier, I think there are forces in our culture that are no less powerful to us and possibly far more demonic, or at least open to demonic manipulation. We call them market forces. Now before you hear me say that owning a bank card or a credit card is having the mark of the devil on your forehead, let me explain what I mean when I talk about market forces. In a western country like Australia, the basic way of assigning value in a capitalist economy is a matter of supply and demand. That's basic capitalist economics. If there's a high demand for something and a low supply, it becomes more valuable and people can make more money through exchanging goods and services. Similarly, if there's a low demand and a high supply, then we say that the market is low, the value is low. Now, it doesn't take very long in a system like this before group attitudes start to form and are based on th- and based on these attitudes, individuals will make judgments about each other. We have the haves and the have-nots. Now, in one respect, it doesn't really matter what they have and what they don't have. It's just that, well, you don't have it. Dr. Seuss makes, wrote this great story called The Sneetches. Has anyone ever seen that? It's about this group of creatures. They all look the same, but some of them have got stars on their tummies and the others don't. And so all the ones with the stars on their tummies look down on the ones who don't have a star. So some budding entrepreneur comes along with a special machine which will paint a star on people's tummies. So all the sneakers who don't have one, they have a star put on their tummy. But then, of course, all the sneakers who did have a star, well, it's not as valuable anymore, is it? But the entrepreneur has a, uh, has a scheme. He makes another machine to take the star off. So all the sneakers who did have stars, they have theirs taken off, while all the others who didn't have stars on their tummies, they're having them put on. And, of course, you know who's making all the money here? It's the entrepreneur, while the sneakers are just spending all their money trying to distinguish and look down on each other based on have and have not. It's a funny story perhaps, but it's very close to the truth in the way that we judge each other. In the end we begin to talk about economy or a market as though it was a living thing. We describe its moods, its actions. The end of the news each day, have you noticed that funny man in the suit who comes on and they say, how's the market today? And he says, well the market was feeling a bit bullish today. The market was feeling bullish today. It's not a thing. But it is. 
It's a very real force in our culture which determines the way that people will treat each other. What we eat, what we wear, what we look like, where we live, the kind of paid work we will do, where and how often we go on holidays are all affected by market forces. I never forget uh, recently, a few years back now, going, I was at a party somewhere and I overheard two women talking about buying a house. I don't own a house, uh, never have done, uh, so I'm always interested in how people go about this kind of thing. But the thing that stuck out in my mind is that uh, one woman said, oh, you know, we're buying a new... And I thought she said, we're buying a new home. She just said, we're buying a new house. And her friend said, oh, is it new or second-hand? <laughs> I thought, what? <laughs> a home where a family grows and people thrive and you know, are enriched in their lives. Was it second hand? But such is the effect that market forces can have on the way that people view the world. The more we get up, caught up in this system, the more we identify with it. The more we begin to think of ourselves in market terms and the market grows ever larger to become a global co- economy. And we find we have less and less control over our daily lives. Consequently, we find ourselves engaging in various rituals and practices that will enable us to do better in our day-to-day lives. If I could just get a better paid job, if I could just get a new home, or we could just renovate the old one we have, if I could just afford to go overseas on holidays, if I could afford to send my children to a better school, if only my investments were growing, if only I had more investments, if only I could get some new clothes, if only I could shed a few pounds. All these things are controlled by market forces in terms of their value or prestige. And the better I am at playing this game, the better things will go for me. Well, it's at this point that I think that Paul's encouragement to the Colossians can be applied to our lives as well. We believe that God has given us all his fullness in the Lord Jesus, whose death on the cross has cancelled any and every claim against us. Therefore, we do not have to live in fear of market forces, because the Lord Jesus is the great power through whom the universe was made. In Jesus, God's whole, God holds all things together for us. For in Jesus we see God's power to bring the dead to life, to overcome the most horrific circumstances. God is no more going to leave us at the mercy of a market than he was to leave Jesus in the tomb. Just as the cross was no indication that God had forgotten or abandoned Jesus, that he had somehow stopped loving Jesus, In the same way, there are no circumstances that could befall us which God could be said to have abandoned us. Consequently, our value is far greater than any bank balance, any address, (coughs) any output could ever display. If we have a lot of super or a little or even none at all, it's the faithfulness of God through Jesus that is the guarantee of our future. Perhaps too for ministry people, there's no slick schemes that will make churches grow in maturity, no easy methods or human philosophies or traditions. Paul's exhortation to the Colossians is the same one to us. Do not be deceived. 
Instead, as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 8, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophies and empty deceits based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world and not based on Christ. Let me pray. Our gracious God, we pray that you would give us a greater sense of the majesty and power of your Son, the Lord Jesus, of your victory for us in him, and our freedom before you in Jesus' name and by the power of your Spirit to live lives that are in your sight holy and blameless. Please protect us from being deceived by the forces and philosophies around us, looking for other things to find our value and forgetting to look in Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your amazing grace in offering yourself up to reconcile us to God. Amen.